Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles now, please, to the book of Mark, <clears throat> Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, you can get your paperback Bible. It's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and uh, you can turn to page 497, and you'll find Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 53 to 65. <clears throat> Mark 14, verses 53 to 65, a lengthy chapter. Mark 14, we have been working our way through Mark over the last year and a half or so, and uh, we're just taking one passage at a time. We just pick up where we left off the week before, and so we're picking picking up where we left off last week. Some of you know that um, uh, one of my early jobs right after I got out of college was working as a newspaper reporter, and uh, I worked for the Muncie Evening Press, which was an afternoon paper here in Muncie, and um, my responsibility, or my beat, as they called it, was the the courts. And so I would go to the Delaware County Courthouse every day and write stories about what was happening there, and um, got to sit in a lot of trials. I got to observe lots and lots of criminal trials. And uh, it was very interesting in a lot of ways. I saw a lot of people convicted of crimes through jury trials. I saw a lot of people uh, acquitted or found not guilty of the charges against them. There was one particular case that was especially notorious. It was something that happened up in Albany, actually, and there was a murder there. A young woman was, was murdered, and so a guy was accused of that crime, and he was put on trial, and uh, I was the one writing the stories about this trial. So I was on the front page of the paper every day. <clears throat> Everybody was kind of paying attention to this. And uh, as the trial went on, there were lots of problems and difficulties, and some of the evidence was actually mishandled, and the defendant was found not guilty. And Everybody was really pretty shocked by that, uh, including those of us in the courtroom, those of us watching. Um, You know, we want to trust the decision of juries, but everybody was uh, pretty convinced that this guy was guilty. Everybody had the general feeling at the end of that trial that there is a guy who just got away with murder, Uh, a guilty guy who got found innocent. It's a horrible injustice, right? And... uh, <clears throat> Anytime the, 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 the guilty go free, we just see that as an injustice. We're kind of outraged by that. But, you know, something that might be, might be worse, at least as bad, but, but maybe worse, is when the innocent are found guilty. I mean, that happens sometimes too, right? The um, National Registry of Exonerations has reported that in the last 34 years, 3,300 people have been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. And just last year, something like 224 uh, people were released from prison for crimes that they didn't commit. How would you respond if you were accused of a crime you didn't commit? And we probably all know what it feels like to be accused of something, maybe not a crime, but some kind of a criticism or a challenge that somebody brings to you, Um, maybe your kids or your boss or your spouse, and you think, I didn't do that. I don't know what your response is to that. My response very often is just immediate uh, frustration and defensiveness and, and retaliation. I do not like to be accused of things I didn't do. 
And yet, that's exactly what we find our Lord Jesus facing in this passage that we're about to read here this morning in Mark 14. Uh, Last week, we left off with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying that the cup might pass from Him. Last week then, we saw that Judas came and betrayed Him with a kiss. Judas led this crowd with swords and clubs, and Jesus was arrested. And now we see that Jesus is escorted before this group called the Sanhedrin. And what we're seeing here today is is a trial. We're seeing a trial, a description of a trial in these passages, and um, it doesn't go so well. So if you are able to stand, why don't you do that now, and let me read this passage to you. Mark 14, starting at verse 53, and they, so that's referring to this crowd with swords and clubs that was led by Judas, they, the crowd, led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this? What, excuse me, what is it that these men testify against you? But he, maintained, he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your inspired and inerrant word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So, since this is a description of a a trial that occurred back in the first century. I'm going to handle this, this message, organize it kind of according to the way a trial works. So let's consider the prosecution, and then we'll consider the defense. So first of all, the prosecution here, where we see a sinful world bringing its charges against Jesus. Passage begins <coughs> there in verse 53. Again, this crowd escorts Jesus to the high priest. This high priest is explained to us in John 18 as a man named Caiaphas, and we are told here also that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Anytime you see those three 
uh, listed, chief priests, elders, scribes. That's a reference to this group called the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin I call it, the Sanhedrin, which is basically the equivalent of the Supreme Court uh, of the, the Jewish community. This is the, the council, the court that had the highest authority among the Jews. Now, remember, the Jews at this time are living under the occupation and the rule of the Romans, and so their authority, the Sanhedrin's authority, is limited. There are certain things they can't do. They, as you might recall from the reading, they're seeking to put Jesus to death, but they actually don't have the authority to do that. So, in order to get a death sentence for Jesus, they have to go to a Roman court. And so, when we get to chapter 15, we're going to see kind of part two of this trial. This is the trial before the Sanhedrin, but there will be a trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, in chapter 15. Uh, But Mark here makes this aside as he talks about the Sanhedrin coming together to examine Jesus here in verse 54, that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, sitting with the guards and uh, warming himself. That phrase there, following him at a distance, might be one we might want to zero in on a little bit and consider. Um, I think Mark's kind of telling us something here uh, about uh, a tendency we all might have, uh, something to beware of, and that is the temptation to want to keep our distance from Jesus. That's what Peter was doing. He wanted to, as one commentator said, avoid costly discipleship for the sake of self-safe observation. And I wonder how many can be described in this way, and maybe this describes you here this morning. There's something about Jesus you like. There's something you're drawn to about Him. You find Him appealing. Yeah, He's a good man, but you're following Him at a distance. You observe Him from afar. You don't want to get too close. You don't want to be called a fanatic. You're not quite sure what it's going to lead to if you follow Jesus too closely. So you follow Him at a distance, and that's what Peter is doing here, and it ends up leading Peter to deny his Lord three times, as we have already considered in a previous sermon. But that's what Mark is noting here, Jesus following at a distance. Well, verse 55, we see the trial begins. The whole council it says, gets together. That's a reference to the Sanhedrin. There are 71. We're 71 members of the Sanhedrin, so it's a large body. Remember, this is after midnight by now. So, uh, it says the whole council. That would suggest that all the members were there, probably in their eagerness to put Jesus on trial. And we see also in verse 55 what their intent was. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were looking for something specific. They are not entering into this trial thinking that Jesus is innocent until proven guilty, like our court system is supposed to work. That was not their intent. They were not apparently objectively seeking the truth. They were not trying to examine the evidence objectively to find out what really happened. This would maybe be a Um, an example of what we call today confirmation bias. Have you heard that phrase used? Confirmation bias, that is when we analyze information to support our pre-existing ideas. That's exactly what the council is doing here. They are seeking evidence with a view in mind to accomplish what they want. And we see this, and um, we are um, troubled by this, and yet let's just humble ourselves and acknowledge that we all do this, right? 
we all have a temptation to find information that supports what we already think. There is value, friends, in listening to people you disagree with, listening to views that are different than your own. That doesn't mean you have such an open mind that you never come down with a conviction on anything. I'm not suggesting that at all. But it's a healthy thing to listen to people you disagree with, and that is certainly not what this Sanhedrin was interested in doing. They were seeking testimony against Jesus. I mean, we see this happen, right? Uh, speaking of courts, like when a Supreme Court nominee is, is nominated, and, you know, there's this big controversy, right? Everybody comes out of the woodwork trying to find testimony against the nominee from the other side. Uh, this goes on repeatedly in our culture today. It went on in the first century with Jesus. So, the problem here for the Sanhedrin, however, as they're trying to seek testimony against Jesus, is that they can't find any evidence. They would love to put Him to death, but verse 55 tells us they found none. They found no evidence. So, what do they do? Well, they're going to have to start inventing evidence, and that's what they do in verses 56 and 57. Many bore false witness against Him. Verse 57, also, some stood up and bore false witness against Him. They're, 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 they're saying things that are not true. They're pulling out all the stops to try to get Jesus found guilty here. And the main claim of these false witnesses, as 58 tells us here, is that they were saying, here's what I heard Jesus say. False witnesses coming forward at this trial. Here, here's what I heard Him say. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Jesus said, this is what the false witnesses are saying, I heard Him say He was going to destroy the temple. Now, that's a pretty serious charge, honestly. That'd be like somebody saying, I'm going to go burn down the White House. Or I'm going to go burn down the state capitol or the, the, the capitol building in Washington, D.C. I mean, that's, that's something you want to take seriously. It would be a serious charge if Jesus had said it. He didn't actually say that He was going to destroy the temple. He certainly said the temple would be destroyed. Remember back in chapter 13, that whole chapter was about this. Jesus predicted, prophesied the temple would be destroyed, but He never said that He was going to destroy the temple. And besides, it was understood, at least by Jesus' disciples, that when He talked about the temple being destroyed and rebuilding it, that He wasn't talking about literally rebuilding the literal temple. At the end of verse 58, He's talking about a temple not made with hands. It's a symbolic temple. It's another kind of temple that He was talking about. And John chapter 2 tells us about this. This is Jesus talking to the Jews. He answers them and He says, destroy this temple. Again, He didn't say, I'm destroying the temple. But destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? So they were taking Him literally. But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So yeah, Jesus did talk about this temple being destroyed, but He didn't say He was going to destroy it, and He didn't say He was going to rebuild the literal temple. What He was saying was, is that you guys all come to the temple to worship God, but what's going to happen is that when I'm resurrected, if you want to worship God, you've got to come to Me. 
Because I'm the new temple. My resurrected body will be the temple through which people come and have relationship with God. That, that's what he meant. That wasn't understood by the Sanhedrin. And so they brought this false charge against him. But there's even another problem with the Sanhedrin's prosecution of Jesus, and that is their testimony didn't agree. It says it twice. In verse 56, did not agree. Verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. <clears throat> when you're making stuff up among a lot of people, it's hard to get things to agree. Uh, maybe you've heard this story, this little parable of the four students who are on their way to college and they, got a, they have an exam and so they're, they're going to take the exam, and, but they kind of realize that they haven't studied and they're not ready. And so <clears throat> they say, let's just call the professor and say, we're not coming and we can say we had a flat tire. So they call the professor, sorry professor, we're, we're on our way, but we got this flat tire, so we can't get there to take the exam. And the professor says, okay, I understand, that's fine. How about you come in tomorrow and take the exam? Okay, we'll do that. <clears throat> so they come in tomorrow to take the exam, and it's placed before them, and there's just one question on the exam. Which tire? Which tire? Uh, they hadn't thought to work out that detail. And so, very likely, they had contradictory answers. Professor knew it was all fabricated. Their testimony did not agree. And that's what happened with these people making up false testimony against Jesus. It's very hard to hold a conspiracy together. And so, we see the Sanhedrin here. Uh, is failing in every respect in their prosecution of Jesus. They're working so hard to find something wrong with Him. They're working so hard to discredit Him. That They're looking for every little skeleton in the closet that they could possibly come up with, and it's all failing because they can't find anything against Jesus. He is the Holy One of God. He is the Righteous One. He is the one on whom no deceit was ever found on His lips. He is the one person who will never disappoint you. You think of all the people you look up to in your life, whether it be an actor or a movie star or a politician, and I mean, even mom and dad and spouses, and, and we love them and we look up to them, but it's, you know, it doesn't take long before you find something that kind of disappoints you. Something that's, yeah, I didn't know they were like that. And yeah, they said they'd do this and they didn't. And they really have a short fuse. And I'm not sure they're always being honest with me. I mean, you know, you're always going to find something, no matter how highly you regard the people in your life, you're always going to find something that disappoints you, but you won't find something that disappoints you in Jesus. He's unassailable. And that's what these witnesses are finding. And yet there's something instructive here about the fact that the accusations against him came anyway. Here is the one person in the world who is beyond criticism, and yet people find ways to criticize him. The world brings its accusations against Jesus. And let me just warn you, friends, if the world is going to find reasons to accuse Jesus, the world's probably going to find reasons to accuse you and me. 
We should do everything we can to live above reproach, but even with that, in this world, we are likely to come under attack for one thing or another. And Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad in that. Consider it an honor. Consider it a privilege, for your reward is great in heaven, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. I just heard on the news this week, maybe you saw this, Bill Maher um, was talking about the shooter in Maine, that mass shooter who was reported to have mental illness and killed 16, 18 people or whatever. He actually said that there's really little difference between that murderer and a Bible-believing Christian. And after he said that, it was met with great applause. That's how a lot of the world looks at, at Christians. So how do you respond to that? That's a false accusation, isn't it? That makes me a little irritated. Makes me want to respond with, with outrage. Well, what does Peter say? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Knowing that there is a God who will judge all mankind in the future, knowing that there is a final judgment is what can give you and me the motivation to restrain ourselves when we're falsely accused. We entrust ourselves to the one who will make it right one day and know that we don't have to make it right in the moment. That's the way our Lord handled it. And uh, (laughs) speaking of the way the Lord handled it, let's go on to see the defense. Uh, That is a sinless Jesus being vindicated before the world. Let's consider how does Jesus respond to the prosecution in this trial. When I was uh, in the courts as a reporter uh, examining all these trials, what would very often happen is I would hear the prosecution and it just always sounded so convincing and so persuasive. And I remember just thinking, there is no way that this person is not guilty. (laughs) That was such an airtight case. And then the defense would get up and make their case and I was like, oh, man, I don't know what to think here. And uh, that's really not the case in this situation, however, <laughs> because the prosecution did not make much of a case. Their case is very, very flimsy. Uh, but nonetheless, Jesus gets to make his defense. And so here it is in verse 60, the high priest says to Jesus, have you no answer to make. In other words, what, what do you say to these things? What do you say to these accusations? And in verse 61, we see Jesus' response, and that is to say nothing. Just silent. Made no answer. So wh- why is this? Why isn't Jesus taking the opportunity to answer the, the question? I mean, one reason could be because he realizes, again, that this whole thing is just a sham. I mean, I've already pointed out to you some of the problems, but in addition to that, you know, the Sanhedrin was breaking all kinds of rules given in Jewish law for how a trial is supposed to be conducted. First of all, you're not supposed to be conducting a trial at midnight. Trials are supposed to happen in the daytime. Um, you were also supposed to give the defendant an opportunity to give his or her case first. That's not happening. And after 
one session was done, there was supposed to be a session the next day as well, uh, particularly in capital cases like, like this, but that's not happening either. And so, this whole thing is a sham. They're breaking every rule. Perhaps Jesus is silent because He's just not going to dignify such an unjust proceeding as this. But there's another reason why Jesus is silent, and that is that everything He is doing is in fulfillment of prophecy. And so we here see in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant looking ahead to Jesus. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before the shearer is silent, so He opened not His mouth. So this is one of Jesus' responses to the charges, just to say nothing. But the high priest asks again in verse 61. <clears throat> Jesus remained silent, but then the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? There's, there's two parts to that question. First of all, are you the Christ? The Christ means the anointed one, the, the Messiah. Are you the Messiah, first of all? And then secondly, are you the Son of the Blessed? The, the Blessed is just a way of referring to, to God. In other words, what he's saying is, are you the Son of God? Now, this is kind of a, a climactic question here because you might recall that all through the book of Mark, what he is trying to explain to us is who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus. This is the question that is asked over and over again throughout the book of Mark. Who is Jesus? And here it is, this question asked to him point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And this is important because there are a lot of people who will say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. That's what His followers said about Him. That's what the church said about Him. Th those were titles that were ascribed to Him, forced upon Him later, but He never meant to say that. He was just a teacher. He was just a religious leader. That's all He claimed to be. This passage just totally refutes that. Here's the question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Son of God? Verse 62, Jesus' answer, I am can't mistake that. Yes, I am the Messiah, and that's who I'm claiming to be. And yes, I am the Son of God. And in fact, as if that's not enough, let me go on in verse 62 and say, and you will also see this Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, coming at the end of the age. And Jesus is just adding that to His list of criteria. I'm fulfilling that one too. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Son of God. Yes, I'm the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied. And I am standing here right before you now. And this passage here in, in Daniel and what is quoted here in verse 62 is just Jesus' way of saying that there is a final day of judgment, and I am the one who's going to be coming on the clouds to judge all creation. And Paul later says this, actually, in Acts 17. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. It's Jesus. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So just as certainly as Jesus has been raised from the dead in the past, so we know He is coming in the future to judge all mankind. So, so Jesus just makes this bold assertion that Mark has been 
prodding us to think about through this whole book, and yes, it's all true. He's Messiah. He's Son of God. He's Son of Man. So how do they respond here? And this is how the passage concludes, verses 63 and 65. I mean, they are scandalized. They just are shocked. They are outraged, it says. They, um, they, they tore their garments, it, it says. That's just a way of expressing outrage at, at this time. Um, they uh, say, you know, there's, we don't even need further witnesses. We can end this trial right now. You've heard enough. He's guilty of blasphemy. And they all agree, the entire Sanhedrin, he should be condemned to death. And then things just kind of start getting out of control. And you almost feel like there's a little bit of a riot going on. They come out and they start um, striking him. And the, the guards are beating him. And, and they're spitting on him. And they're covering his head and mocking him to prophesy. And it just feels like this whole Jesus thing is out of control, doesn't it? I mean, you read this, it's just like it feels like the forces of evil are overcoming the forces of good. Which is quite frequently how we feel when we look at the world that we live in today, right? Are things out of control here? I mean, it's a pretty vivid description, isn't it? Jesus predicted that this is exactly what was going to happen back in chapter 8, 9, and 10. Specifically in chapter 10, He said He was going to be beaten, said He was going to be spit upon. I mean, let's not pass by that too quickly. Have you ever, have, have you ever had somebody spit on you? I mean, sometimes people who sit in the front rows at churches get spit on a little bit by, by the preacher. Uh, there's enough distance here that I don't think that happens here. That's not the kind of spitting I'm talking about. I mean, somebody who is so angry at you that they walk right up to you and just spit on you. Has that ever happened to you? It hasn't happened to me, uh, but I can only imagine how hard that would be to deal with. Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in my, I think, probably my favorite movie, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, back from the 60s. Gregory Peck is in that movie, you know, based on the, the famous book, <clears throat> and um, uh, Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch, who, who is an attorney. And Atticus Finch is called to defend an African-American man named Tom Robinson who was falsely accused of a crime. And so there's a very famous trial scene in that movie. And <clears throat> after the trial is, is over and um, uh, Tom Robinson is found guilty, even though he was innocent, there's this guy named Bob Ewell. And Bob Ewell is kind of the bad guy. He's the guy who set everything up to get Tom Robinson falsely accused. And so Gregory Peck, Atticus Finch, he's going to Tom Robinson's house, and he wants to offer some consolation, and Bob Ewell is there. And Bob Ewell walks up to, to Gregory Peck and uh, just gets about a foot from him and just spits right in his face. And Gregory Peck, you know, just is, is kind of shocked, and, and he, like, he takes one step toward him, like he's just about to unleash, and then he composes himself, and he reaches into his pocket, gets a handkerchief out, wipes his face, puts the handkerchief back in, gets in the car, and drives away. That right there is a picture of Jesus, a picture of remarkable restraint and godliness, and righteousness. And Atticus Finch, Gregory Peck, in, in that moment, he, he was doing that to defend one man, Tom Robinson. But Jesus has done this to defend all of those who trust in Him. Jesus took that spitting 
to defend you. He, he took it for you. And it's, it's another fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 50, looking ahead to the Savior again, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. I hid not my face from it. In other words, I willingly took it. I could have done something about it, but I didn't. I willingly took it. You see, as we look at this and we see it just feels like this is a kangaroo court. This is something spinning out of control. This is evil overcoming good. But friends, don't forget as we're reading this and even as we look at the world that God is always in control. God is always doing something. That that God is not being overcome. And that if we look carefully at these texts, we see that, that God is weaving something together here that is just amazing. There's just so many very interesting little ironies here that are all part of God's plan for how He's going to use this. I mean, think about this. You know, the Sanhedrin here is coming. They're the ones charging Jesus with wrongdoing, and yet they're the ones who are guilty of all the wrongdoing. The priest comes and accuses Jesus of blasphemy, and yet the priest is the one bearing false witness against the Son of God. He's the one committing blasphemy. The, the, the crowd comes and they... They mock Jesus, and they tell Him in verse 65, hey, prophesy for us, Jesus, and yet everything they're doing is the fulfillment of prophecy. And here they're putting Jesus on trial, and yet what Jesus is saying in fulfillment of Daniel 7 is that the day is coming when I'm going to come, and I'm going to put all of you on trial. Everything is a little different than it appears. When we think of things theologically and keep in mind God's sovereignty and His plan of redemption, we can have hope even when it seems like evil is overcoming good. And so the promise is made here. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to judge all mankind, all of us. Every single one of us will stand before Him to give an account one day. That includes you and includes me. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to give an account? for yourself before Jesus when He comes with the clouds. How can you be ready? Well, it's, it's very simple. You just have to turn from your sin and repent and trust in Jesus. You have to give up on all your hopes and your own efforts to please God and trust in what Jesus has done on your behalf. You can see, if you just with the, with the eyes of faith, see what is really going on here in this situation. That is that Jesus is being condemned by an earthly court so that you who trust Him can be absolved in the heavenly court. You're seeing here Jesus found guilty before men so that you and I can be found not guilty before God. Here we have Jesus, the innocent one, found guilty so that whoever trusts in Him, the guilty will be found innocent. This is the gospel right here in this passage. Jesus, the innocent one, pronounced guilty so that guilty ones can be pronounced innocent. Is that your hope? Is that what you're leaning on? Is that your confidence for the last day when Jesus comes with the clouds? If it's not, make it your hope today. Make it your hope now because Jesus is just righteous, holy, unassailable, perfect in all His ways, but He is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Him. Lord, Your Word is uh, so full of truth. It's so rich. It's so, it's so good. 
And so we thank you, Lord, for recording for us all that you have endured for us, Jesus, the humiliation that you endured, the pains, the sufferings, the spitting, the mocking, the beatings, and ultimately death on a cross for us. We thank you, O Lord God, and uh, pray for a filling of your Holy Spirit that the way we live would always honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.